This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Series 3, Episode 3 of the ILD Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. Featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland interstitial lung disease community, these podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work being done around the country and break down some of the challenges facing us in delivering excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter and Royal Devon University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, with a special interest in patient-reported measures in interstitial lung disease and patient-centred approaches. The title of this episode is The Benefits of Dietitians Within an ILD Service. And joining me on today's episode is Raz Kahai, a respiratory dietitian and disability and wellness network co-chair at the Royal Brompton and Harefield Hospital. Welcome, Raz. Thank you so much for having me today. So I wonder, Raz, if I could start by asking you a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you um, ended up in the world of dietetics. Yeah, sure. So I ended up in the world of dietetics probably a little bit differently to most people. So in my early teenage years, I actually became a wheelchair user and experienced firsthand what it was like to be a patient in the NHS. I was rehabbing during that time and I missed multiple years of school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. All I knew is that I really wanted to kind of give back and to help people in a way that people had helped me. When I was looking at all the different types of professions, in particular things that I could do within being a wheelchair user, I came across dietetics. And to me, baking was something which really helped me in my recovery and was something I frequently did. So I loved the hands-on aspect of kind of cooking and baking but I also loved science and I started to learn a little bit about nutritional science when I was doing my A-levels and so I think those two things together alongside nutritional counselling skills and being able to build rapport with patients all of those things just made sense to bring it together to become a dietitian. Yeah, so you're clearly a very driven woman with baking skills. <laughs> and now you find yourself at the Royal Brompton Hospital. And certainly, I think for everyone listening to this podcast will appreciate that nutrition is important for our patients. I wondered if we could just talk a little bit about benefits of being a dietitian within the multidisciplinary team, and then more generally within the healthcare services for, for patients with interstitial lung disease. Yeah, so I think the benefits of being a dietitian within a multidisciplinary team is a couple of different fold. So to start off with, we know that in the evidence base suggests that for dietitians, we support diagnosis and treatment of malnutrition. We can support improving our patients' quality of life, energy intake, and in some aspects, weight and body mass index. But we can't really do that alone. And the reason for that is a couple of reasons. Number one, because a lot of these patients have what we call nutrition impact symptoms. So what that might mean is they might be feeling quite nauseous or they might be having diarrhea. And whilst we can support from a dietetic perspective, sometimes that doesn't work. And actually, we need our MDT colleagues to support prescribing different kinds of medications like antiemetics and making sure the timing is perfect, like 30 minutes before their meals so they can manage to ma eat their food and have their nutrition. But also from a different perspective, if we look at it from an allied healthcare professional perspective, in order to maintain patients' muscle, which is 
I'm going to go on to in a little bit, but it's very important within interstitial lung disease. Nutrition and protein is just one aspect of that. And actually, we can't do that without our physio and occupational therapy colleagues who support with the exercise and support with function in order to support their muscle maintenance. Um, Also, in terms of we work a lot with psychology because of the bidirectional link between malnutrition and depression. So really plays a vital role. And again, it's bidirectional. So we also know that if patients are malnourished and their nutrition isn't very good, we know that they're going to struggle to get better anyway. So not only do my MDT colleagues support me, but also me supporting them with their care as well. And and do you find, Raz, that you're able to attend the multidisciplinary team meetings uh, so you're getting early notification of patients? Yeah, definitely. I think it's pretty much, and I think this is pretty much nationwide at the moment within the world of ILD, it's primarily inpatients that dietitians tend to play a role. But I'm hoping and looking to expand that soon to outpatients as well, because I think that's where we really have an unmet need. And there's a real need to do more research as to the impact that we can have on these patients as an outpatient. Absolutely. That sounds like great aspiration, which I'm sure you will make a a reality. And so I guess thinking about some of the challenges of ensuring optimal nutrition in patients diagnosed with interstitial lung disease, I guess predominantly your current workload is is on inpatients, but perhaps also a bit more in general. Um, Could you tell us about some of the the challenges that patients face uh, in that regard? Yeah, so there are two main different types of challenges. So the first is patients who are obese, which is defined as a body mass index greater than 30. And in particular, we worry about those patients who are looking for transplant. So there's a little bit of a dichotomy here because the research evidence base shows that being a larger BMI can have a bit of a protective factor for ILD and IPF and actually for the majority of respiratory diseases, if I'm being completely honest. However, what can be quite challenging for patients is they can see that protective factor and they might have heard about it. But then in order for them to be on the transplant list, they have to be a BMI of 30 and below. And I think what's really important in that case is supporting our patients with ILD to lose weight in a really supportive manner where they're not doing it actually really rapidly and losing their muscle. Because if they get really deconditioned prior to transplant, we'd really worry about how they would recover as well. So sometimes where we can and we have the capacity, we would support patients trying to lose weight in a really sustainable and compassionate way in order to get their BMI under 30 so that they can go for transplant. However, the majority of the work that we tend to do is working with malnourished patients. And by that, I mean, it could be a low BMI. So anything under 21, especially because our cohort is a little bit but more elderly. Also patients who have lost unintentional weight loss. And in this patient group in particular, we can see evidence of if they lose just 5% or more of their body mass that that's linked with poorer outcomes and decreased survival and also we look at it in terms of negligible intake so I roughly say if they're eating a quarter or less of their meals for five days or more they tend to trigger a, a dietetic referral so that's the majority of kind of the patient group in terms of how we would screen for malnutrition currently in terms of how we would support these patients we would really look at twofold. If they're potentially on the transplant list, a low BMI body mass index can 
be a contraindication for transplant. So we'd be looking at intensive nutrition support to trying to build them up. But also we'd be looking at their quality of life and how diet plays into that, looking at their nutrition impact symptoms and seeing whether we can change their diet to support some of their symptoms. As many of you are probably aware, a lot of these patients might be put on antifibrotic medications and the side effects of these antifibrotic medications tend to be gastrointestinal related. So things like diarrhea, anorexia in terms of poor appetite, nausea and vomiting. And the reason it's really important we are kind of hoping to get a dietetic intervention involved at that point is because if these patients are losing weight, they then might have to come off the antifibrotic medications and so they won't get the benefits to their lungs. But the hope is that if we can intervene and support with their nutritional status and also their nutrition impact symptoms by looking at changing their diet, they'll hopefully be able to stay on the drug for longer and have the impact on their lungs that the antifibrotic medications give. Indeed, I think weight loss, of course, wherever possible, we want to prevent that happening. Um, I know I tend to advise my patients that come to the regional clinic for initial diagnosis. I tend to ask them to monitor their weight on a weekly basis. Do you find that you're picking up patients fairly quickly when they begin to lose weight or is it a little bit variable depending on the individual patient, I guess? Yeah, I think at the moment, because up and down the country, and again, this is kind of a nationwide issue, there are not many dietetic outpatient services. Typically what's happening for our ILD cohort at the moment is they're seeing dietitians within the community when they have become quite malnourished. So something I would really like to advocate for and look at more is actually screening nutrition screening for nutritional risks for all of our ILD patients initially. And yeah, I completely agree. Weighing on a regular basis is really important. But of course, some people don't have scales. So it's looking at whether their clothes aren't fitting, looking at their jewellery, whether it feels looser. Any kind of signs of weight loss in this patient group is so important that we pick up and try and sort out immediately. So anything we can do to help these patients, I would yeah definitely advocate for screening a lot earlier. So as you've talked a little bit about weight loss and how we can manage that and possibly thinking about prevention as well, I wonder in terms of the patients who uh, do lose muscle mass, do you have any thoughts about you working with the interdisciplinary team as well, uh, how, how we can manage that in patients with interstitial lung disease? Yeah, so generally we recommend a high energy and high protein diet, which I think lots of people may have heard about before. I would err on the cautious side of that, especially if any of our patients have comorbidities, especially because they tend to be more on the elderly side of the population. So just as a bit of a warning, renal disease is a contraindication for a high protein diet. So there would just always be a bit of a risk benefit discussion. It's really important to optimize protein because amino acids are the building blocks to our muscle. But we know that protein alone isn't going to help build muscle mass just automatically. So it's also thinking about how we can work with our different colleagues, so our occupational therapy colleagues and supporting with their function on a day-to-day -day basis, but also our physiotherapy colleagues just to support with particularly weight-bearing exercises in order to support maintenance of muscle. And that could even include a referral to the pulmonary rehab team. I will say something that we're not particularly good at, though, is measuring muscle mass. And people often say, well, how do you know if it's helping and how do you know if it's getting better? 
typically within labs and research, we use BIA machine, which is bioelectrical impedance analysis. But within the NHS setting, we typically don't have that and it's quite unaffordable. But again, what I would advocate for is if people are considering about how to measure muscle, something which is quite fun for patients is actually using a hand grip strength. So if every now and again, you can have a hand grip strength and measure that, that might be a really good way of measuring muscle mass in in terms of strength for a patient. And actually, they're really receptive towards it as well. So if they've worked really hard on their energy and protein intake and their exercise, and they can see those numbers changing, they tend to get really excited about that as well. So that's quite a nice patient outcome for them to see. Thank you. So, Russ, I guess you're quite unique. I don't think there are too many specialist dietitians in interstitial lung disease services up and down the UK. So what do you think we need to do to, um, other than cloning you, <laughs> which uh, might not, not be possible at this stage, what, what can we do to ensure that there are specialist dietitian roles available to other interstitial lung disease services up and down the UK? So I think the first thing is always collecting the data. I think that's the most important thing in order to create a business case. So at the moment, we know that there is research showing that anywhere from 9 to 55% of these patients could be malnourished, but that's such a big variation. We know that anecdotally, we feel that dietetics might support. We know that BMI is a protective factor in terms of being a large BMI is shown to have protective factors um, in terms of survival. However, even though we know that, and we kind of see this in the respiratory cohort generally, again, fat-free mass or muscle is really important. Within ILD particularly, there's actually no evidence to suggest that dietitians are helpful. So there's not to my knowledge, ever been a study to look at the role of dietetics or actually really any intervention. So we know that weight loss is bad. We know it's linked with poor outcomes, but we don't know what happens if anyone tries to intervene. And so that's something that I'm really grateful to be working on in the next few months for a year. Um, I'll be doing hopefully one of the first pilot studies, which is kindly funded from the Royal Brompton and Harefield Charity. Um, It's a fellowship. I'll be looking at doing a pilot study. It's a feasibility study looking at dietetic intervention with malnourished patients with interstitial lung disease. And so the hope is that we can do a little bit more, we can get hopefully a little bit more data that way and look at actually what happens with a dietitian. I think the other thing is, and I know this isn't necessarily easy and I know everyone's busy within the NHS, but trying to gather data even just at a local level so trying to monitor weight BMI trying to put that on a spreadsheet tracking it over time seeing how that trends seeing how the weight and BMI trend I think that will be really important to start a business case and start advocating for a dietitian as well. That sounds really exciting Raz did you say that's 12 months you're doing this piece of work over and has that started how long do we have to wait for the results? I'll be starting next month. So um, we're a little bit over a year off, hopefully. (laughs) But it's going to be very small as it's just a pilot or a feasibility study. No, fantastic. And in addition to this research, and hopefully that will lead on to to greater things, um, is there any other research that you're aware of that's going on uh, within interstitial lung disease at the minute? Or do you think we're really struggling uh, in regards to nutrition? 
Part of the issue is just that dietetics aren't really funded within the service. So it can be really challenging to find the time and the energy to be able to go into that space and undertake research. I will say there is a wonderful dietitian in Canada. She's called Sylvia Rinaldi, and she has done a lovely review. Just It was just released last year around nutritional implications within ILD. But when I was searching for support, when I was thinking of putting my research fellowship in, she was actually the only other dietitian I could find who was really working in the space quite intensively. So I think it's a little bit of a catch-22 that when there are not that many dietetic services, it's then hard to push the research forward. But hopefully I've, I've recently started a respiratory dietetics group. So I'm trying to get all different kinds of respiratory dietitians up and down the country to come together and discuss what we're seeing. And so hopefully in the future, with all of us working together, we might see a little bit of progress. That's great. There's certainly a lot of merit in a shared voice uh, to effect change. And I'm just wondering within that group, Raz, do you, do you work a lot with speech and language therapists? Is there a strong crossover? Yeah, I think we definitely do. And again, especially within ILD, when our patients have gourd, so reflux, if it's uncontrolled, that can sometimes lead to dysphagia. So there's definitely a role for speech and language therapists, and we tend to work with them more in an inpatient setting as well. And I'm guessing at the minute, possibly in relation to capacity, the SLTs are are not currently a regular attendee at the MDT. That might be more work that you do in part of your working day. Yeah, I think so. I I definitely think there is undiagnosed dysphagia going on. But again, the instance of that is just something we're not too sure about yet. Uh, More opportunities for more research. Um, I guess as a registered dietitian, you would, of course, now be um, eligible for the NIHR funding pathways for the Integrated Clinical Academic Pathway, uh, which is great that that's been expanded to a number of professions. So uh, hopefully you'll be progressing on to your doctoral studies at some point in the non too distant future. I just wanted to ask you about the the sort of association, because I guess nutrition is important, not only to the patient, but in the family context. I know you said at, at the minute you're not doing a great deal about patient work, although that's going to expand. But do you have the opportunity to meet with the family members and to talk about the context of family and nutrition at all? Yeah, I think nutrition in the context of family is really important for multiple reasons, usually because when our patients are really unwell, they're going to struggle to cook and eat and they might rely on family support for their meals, for supporting with eating. Um, We usually recommend little and often, so just getting the food and getting it from the shops to home and and putting it by their bedside or putting it by wherever they're kind of sitting or lying that day. So it's really important from that perspective, but it's also really important in terms of the relationship between the patient and the carer. I know what my family are like um, whenever I get unwell. My mum always tries to, the first thing she does is she always tries to feed me up. And typically it's because it's something that she feels like she can control. And usually we get into arguments about food and nutrition because when she doesn't see me eating, she feels really bad. And we can definitely see that dynamic play out within dietetics and within this patient group as well. And, it, and it's really challenging because food is the way that people show love. 
And when patients are unwell, they have a poor appetite, they don't want to eat, it can be really hard for their loved ones to watch that. So a lot of the time we might go in and look at that dynamic and look at how we can be supportive, even sometimes just providing reassurance when patients are really unwell, actually saying it's okay if that patient doesn't want to eat and drink for now and actually just focus on something fun and something um, that you guys want to focus on um, something else which is not related to food because it can cause anxiety for our patients. So we'll take that kind of whole holistic approach and look at it from kind of the individual level about how food is being prepared and given all the way through to the dynamics and how that works between the patient and carer as well. But it's really tricky. Um, And especially, I I guess I want to raise the issue of cough briefly. Uh, So a lot of patients struggle with cough. Maybe that's triggered by eating, sitting at the table, which causes distress. Is there any particular advice you could give um, maybe around particular foods or things to, to avoid or techniques that could help with cough that could impact on nutritional status through impaired eating? Yeah, so I think the first thing we would say is definitely get a speech and language therapist involved, especially if coughing with eating. And that's just to make sure that there aren't any swallowing issues. And obviously, if they mention anything to follow their recommendations. But otherwise, we would definitely take the little and often approach. Typically and anecdotally, what we found helpful is patients tend to find softer foods helpful. We tend to space out their meals and snacks. Drinks are really helpful, but switching them to nourishing drinks. So instead of kind of water, looking at juices, milk-based drinks, because that way they're still getting their energy and protein and vitamins and minerals down, but it's not as fatiguing. Any Essentially, we kind of, again, take a bit of a patient-centered approach. Any foods which are easier to kind of get down, we would definitely recommend. And then we might even look at the nutritional adequacy. So I know sometimes we've had patients where all they've managed to eat is kind of softer foods, ice cream, mousses. And actually, sometimes that can be okay for a short period of time. And then we'll just look at having like multivitamin to cover for any micronutrient deficiencies, just to make sure that we're covered. And actually to kind of take the stress away from that patient and actually just get for now, get foods down, which are easy to have. And then we can worry about the nutritional adequacy in a little bit, um, because you've got your multivitamin as well. Oh, fantastic. That's been really interesting, Raz. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation very much. It has made me rather hungry. Um, <laughs> uh, so I really uh, would like to thank you very much. And I, I sincerely wish you well with your 12 months ahead of collecting this important data. And it's fantastic that you've been awarded um, a Royal Brompton uh, Health Charity grant. I, I think that charity uh, does amazing work. Um, so wishing you all the very best with that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, And I'd like to thank the listeners for uh, listening to this week's episode. And I would like to invite you to join us next week for episode four in this five-part series when we will discuss the barriers to publication in interstitial lung disease and the need for research to be published and showcased. Thank you. Thank you.